perspective thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Some celestial event that works. You really shook the pillars of heaven. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball, from Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm really excited. We have a really fun show for you tonight, and this is our second episode. We had such a great response to the first one that was a kind of the return to Phantom Galaxy that we had last month. You can catch that. I Bill Van Vagel on the show, and he and I discussed uh, The Vast of Night, which is available on Amazon Prime. And then we did something called VOD Roulette, where we each chose a movie for the other and reviewed it. We're going to do that again for this episode. And these review episodes will feature that segment and a kind of showcase review. We will do those regularly with Phantom Galaxy, but we're also going to start getting into themed reviews where we'll discuss an artist, a filmmaker, a composer, a series of movies across a theme. Books will be discussed as well. I'm talking with some people now to set up reviews for some board games, uh, some TV series, things like that. So a lot of really cool, fun stuff coming, and we are getting a schedule set up for a lot of that. We have a couple episodes already in the bag that will be coming soon. And that also includes another episode that will be dropping this week as a bonus. It will be myself and the host of the Great Fright North podcast, Dave Roy, who's also from Canada. He'll be joining me as we talk about the work of composer Ennio Morricone, who passed two weeks ago. We'll be discussing the music of his films, and we're also going to discuss The Drive-In and a couple of movies that we both got to see, uh, Jaws and Jurassic Park back-to-back. That'll be dropping very soon. But for now, I am joined again by Bill Van Vagel up from Canada, a little bit outside Toronto. Bill, how are you doing tonight? I am doing wonderful. We've had nice weather. We're fortunate. The sun is out. It usually doesn't set till about nine, quarter after nine, so beautiful. Yeah, same here, but like I say, we've got we've got pouring rain, but it's not bad because we've had a few really hot days, hot sunny days, and it's nice to get a, a little bit of reprieve from that. But what we'll do right now is we'll start with the VOD roulette segment, and last time we picked two movies, we discussed them, and then we picked two more movies. For anyone who didn't join last time, let's just go back uh, very briefly. We watched last time, I think it was, I picked Alien Trespass. And then you picked, what was it, the uh, the Astounding She-Monster, I believe? The Astounding She-Monster, which was truly astounding. It, it was astoundingly bad. Um, and I think my, my memory was Alien Trespass, we both liked it quite a bit. I think we uh, fell somewhere in the 7, seven to 8 range, um, somewhere. And then Astounding She-Monster, not so high, however... It was. It's one of those bad movies that if you're a bad movie aficionado, I think we 
came down on the fact that if you if you like seeing things that are bad, you may want to check it out. You just might not get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And may I add an outstanding poster. Take a look at the poster and then you can save the other 65 minutes or whatever uh, whatever it was regarding that. So what we're going to do right now is talk about the movies from last uh, that were announced last week. So the first one, Bill, I'm going to let you talk about the movie that I picked for you to watch, which turned out that it was the double bill with the Astounding She-Monster. So when that movie played in theaters, and really it was playing at drive-ins, this was the movie that played with it. Okay, now if everybody's listening, get your pen out, because you're going to need <laughs> it for the title. This wonderful movie that my friend Nathan has got given me to watch was called, and I'll give you the long version, The Saga of the Viking Women and Their Voyage to the Waters of the Great Sea Serpent, otherwise known in short as The Saga of the Viking Women. Now, this is obviously a take on those late 50s to mid 50s Viking and gladiator type movies. Now, a couple of things of note about this movie. I'm not going to go into a huge depth because really you don't need to. It was directed by Roger Corman and it was an American international uh, productions film. So uh, it had a certain genre to it. It had a certain reputation about that company. And so it was basically a quick dash in, out, throw it out there and get it released so it could be a B-side to a drive-in or or those two-for-one movie nights or what have you. So I'm going to give you a bit of a rundown, but I'm not going to go to extensive lengths because this movie really doesn't need that. And don't go to any more lengths than the writers themselves went to. So. <laughs> uh, that will tell you that little interlude what the movie was like. Uh, so the men on an island in Viking times leave to find more fruitful land. They're on this island in the middle of wherever. Uh, Scandinavia, uh, under the auspices of that. Scandinavia, California. <laughs> they decide that they need to find a more fruitful land because they've lived there for three years. The, gra the, the land is pretty arid. They can't grow much. There's not much in the way of vegetation, what have you. So they all take off and the women stay behind. But after three years, the women are wondering what the heck happened to our men. You know, we need to procreate. We need to build things. The civilization needs to get going. They're gone. So the women, I think I'm going to estimate that that's maybe eight, decide that they're going to get on a large Viking ship and sail to this unknown land to try to find their men. Which leads to one of the first funny parts of the movie is the women have built this big wooden ship and they're taking off and the rudder falls off. And I read in the notes that that was not in the script, but Roger Corman just went with it and made it work. So <laughs> as you're watching it, you're yep. like, oh, oh yep, boy. He sure did. Oh, <laughs> so, so they uh, get over. They I wrote down the things they deal with. So they come across whales, sharks, sea serpents, lightning storm. Now, this is ostensibly only women that are going. Yet somehow there's a male that they see on the island who didn't make it across. Maybe he was too young to go with the men at the time. And when they go across, he's been stowed away and he's underneath a sail or something. People don't notice until he reveals himself. It really has no relevance to the plot. It's just a, a WTF moment. Um, so the women get to the island, yet they're taken captive by island warriors. 
these clean-shaven, well-chiseled men on horses who come and round them up. But one line I wrote down uh, that I found hilarious was, one of the women, as they see the men approaching, go, they can be handled. They're only men. Okay. So I don't know if this is a pro-feminist film, an anti-feminist film, or what the heck message they're trying to say. Um, the lead actress is a actress called Abby Dalton. And if you know her, I don't. This was her first credited role, in case you're there for the trivia. Uh, so eventually the women get taken in. They get corralled. They find that there's like a leader, a dictator, a group of people that have taken over the island because it was once a Viking island and they must have left or what have you, left behind ruins of buildings and this new tribe has taken over. They've got a ruthless leader who they discover that the men from their first trip out were taken captive. They're working as slaves. Uh, there's an escape by the women who get recaptured and then there's a revolt at the end I'm not going to give away what happens. Not that you really need to know because whatever happens happens and you can predict what's going to happen. Uh, there's a burning of the stake uh, or is there, the acting is very wooden. The effects are gosh darn awful. Uh, this is a B grade. Um, and this is more like a Z grade. Well, yeah, I'm being kind to Mr. <laughs> Corman. Um, but you can, it's an early gladiator type of film. But at some point, the sea serpents basically look like a rubber bath toy where somebody's holding it at the bottom and they're shooting it at the level of a bathtub and the, the water's going up and down. It's And an obvious background is stock footage of some sort of water scene. And then they're in this boat kind of moving up and down like they're on a ride at Disneyland. Like it's very, very low level. But if you are into gladiator films, if you are into Viking films, if you want to see where a possible inspiration for Conan the Barbarian was early made, check it out. It has a kind of a neat poster. Uh, it would be one that would be cool to have framed in your basement, especially if you get the colorized version. Would I watch it again? Well, maybe if it's a bad night. But I will say I did not enjoy it as much as the She-Monster because at least with the She-Monster... I got a couple chuckles. I didn't really even get any chuckles out of this one. So <laughs> I give this a one out of 10. What do you think, Nathan? I, I, yeah. I don't want to be in the place of necessarily defending this movie. Um, you're, this is another case where you're absolutely right that the poster, we could probably start racking this up as a t tally here. And I think the further back you go, the more that's true. Back when they would actually get an artist to paint a beautiful, like, you know, poster for this movie. It's, it's a great looking poster, but does it represent the movie? Not exactly. <laughs> I mean, those elements, there is a, there is indeed a Viking ship full of women and there is a sea monster, but it doesn't look anything like that. And probably when we get to talking about, uh, when we do our Harryhausen episode, one of the things that was always striking about Harryhausen is you'd have that beautiful poster and the things on his poster would actually be in his movie, <laughs> you know, and they would look relatively like the things in his movie. That's not the case with this movie, which I think Corman saw the movie The Vikings, you know, with Kirk Douglas, which isn't exactly a great picture either, but it had some money behind it. It had a little bit of a juicier script. And the problem with this isn't even that it's cheap, because it is. It is cheap. And you're absolutely right about the effects are 
the the effects are almost the most fun part because they're so bad. You say it's a bath toy. It pretty much literally is a bath toy. If it's not a bath toy, it's a hand puppet that's eating bath toys, you know. From that perspective, the problem with the movie is it's... It, it clearly that whole title it's either the title that a that a first grader writes on his paper or it's intended to be kind of exploitation right you're like we, we got viking women we have waters and we have a great sea serpent and none of those things are particularly interesting it's not even fun as a as like as a trashy you know b or z grade movie that's it's very very bland um i i do appreciate that corman is trying to he's got the women there and he doesn't really he he's not really that exploitative with them either. You know what I mean? There's from the perspective that he seemed like he was trying to take that idea of this group of women seriously, but then you know they get captured, they get you know they escape, they get captured again, and it's just not very interesting. A large chunk of this movie is them dealing with these uh, these men on the other side of the island. And those characters aren't interesting either. I mean, none of the characters are interesting. And Corman doesn't even do much with the sea monster, the, the titular great sea serpent, shows up for, what, maybe 10 seconds of the entire movie? Somewhere near the beginning? There was one that they kind of come into contact with on the way there. And I'm not quite sure if that's the same one they came into contact or with. Or just a cousin or a relative, yeah. <laughs> I don't know either. I'm not, I'm not certain about the sea serpent hierarchy there. It's reasonably well shot when you consider that he made this thing in five or six days and he had very, very little resources. And I do think that it's, it's kind of, you know, you're sort of uh, glad to see all these people really trying. I'm sure these people were hoping this was going to be a big break. I'm not sure... If they thought, you know, working on this movie <laughs> would be a big break for them. Abby Dalton gives it her all. I just, it just doesn't go very far. A lot of that's because everything feels perfunctory. Like, you can tell that this was Corman getting it out of the gate as quickly as he could. I think with these Viking movies, you kind of need to have a little bit of money behind them. These um, sword and sandal epics, because if they aren't... If the production values aren't there, if you don't have the creatures, if you don't have... Um, really interesting things to look at then what's really the point that's really all there is to the genre and you certainly don't have a nuanced well-written story so it just comes off being really bland it's probably one of the most boring fantasy movies that i've ever seen and the characters are not convincing as vikings the setting is not convincing so it's clearly they're just hanging out on the the shores of california somewhere you clearly don't see any fjords in this movie no no that's this isn't a movie and again, going back to a movie like this, you primarily go back to it for the kind of cheesy camp factor. And there's not a lot of camp, intentional or otherwise, in this. Corman's too good of a director to make it look really, really ridiculously bad in the way that the She-Monster was. But he's also going so fast that he doesn't slow down to do anything interesting. So I I could throw out a two a 2.5 maybe just to keep it in the same level. I can't in good conscience rate it lower than the She-Monster but it isn't it isn't very good no I, I mean the thing of it is that frustrates you is with a little bit of refinement and imagination there was a bit of a basis for a somewhat interesting story but it was obviously a thrown together script i mean there are, yeah. there are there are plot holes the size of a friggin black hole in this script you know he seems to keep second-guessing himself because when he opens that movie immediately and you have all those women on the shore and they're talking about going on this voyage, but then, you know, well, where we're going, we're going to meet up with the men. And then they can't even go five seconds without having a, a random guy walk out from behind a tree, right? So he, I think he really stuck to his guns and just had the Viking women on their own. 
uh, and had worked on the, that, it would have maybe been better. I was going to say the other thing about it is is for an exploitative uh, exploitive film, the women weren't all that sexy, to be honest. Well, and that was the thing. I don't think he was even going for that. No, they were nice looking. I'm not saying they're unattractive women. What I'm saying is it was almost a grindhouse film with a family flair to it. Yeah. Like there was no blood. Yes. There was no real kills. Uh, you know, the, the I can't see the boys going home after watching this and putting them up, the girls' posters up on their wall. Like it wasn't that, but it sure as hell wasn't for its acting either. So, And it wasn't really an adventure. Like it was no... Uh, pirate movie of the 50s. Yeah, it's almost like he wanted it to pre- be prestigious, but he also knew he didn't have the time. And you're right, it doesn't, it's not, it's not seedy, and it's not, like, like, it isn't going for the exploitation, which is almost the thing that's surprising when you first see it. The girls are there trying to give performances, right? They're, you know, they're trying to do the Kirk Douglas and the Vikings thing. It's supposed to be this big, grand epic, but it's not... <laughs> It just doesn't work. It would have been more successful if he had Errol Flynn with the uh, faster pussycat girls. Like that kind of would have would have done it. He did do one a year later called Teenage Caveman. Uh, Roger Corman did that one's a bit more fun, and he actually has a story that he you know that it's not a great story, but it is a science fiction story. It does go places, and it's more fun to watch than this one. That was a year later. I think usually when you if you're looking to buy a DVD. This movie and uh, Teenage Caveman are in the same disc together. So I would recommend that one. There are, other, there are many other Corman movies that are well worth seeing. This, unfortunately, really isn't one. If you are into Viking epics, you know, why not see them all? But otherwise, I can't recommend it at all. If you're it's, into uh, B or lower grade films, if you're a Roger Corman completist, or if you're into Viking early origin films, watch it. And on the plus side, it's only 66 minutes. So it's, that is true. It is it is short, and as Bill did point out uh, earlier and alluded to, it's completely tame. You could watch it with your family. There are better movies to watch with your family. <laughs> anything anything that Harryhausen made and uh, things things of that nature. So anyway, let's move to the second movie, which is the movie you chose for me, which is The Earth Dies Screaming. Wasn't certain if I had heard this title before, but I actually wasn't certain if I'd ever seen this film before. And it is directed by Terrence Fisher, who we mentioned last time is responsible for a lot of the colorized hammer monsters, you know, not the universal ones, but the mummy and Dracula with Christopher Lee, a lot of really other good movies. Uh, The Gorgon comes to mind, which I think he did a year after this. And he, this is one of those few movies. It's not done with hammer, but it's outside of the, the hammer brand at this point. And he, I think he had just finished making curse of the werewolf, which is another really good one uh, right before this, but this is a science fiction movie. And I had, I had heard the title, but I had never seen it before. And I didn't quite realize I hadn't seen it until I began watching it. But, uh, it, it begins a black and white film. It begins with an opening where you just see a lot of different, uh, for lack of a better term, disasters happening. And these disasters are happening because people are just sort of falling down, passing out. You see a train crashing, you see a plane crash down, and you see the smoke wafting up above the trees. You see a car smash into a wall. And for science fiction aficionados, as you're watching this, you may think, hey, I've seen something like this before. This would have been a couple years earlier in The Village of the Damned. 
uh, with the black and white movie that has this entire town sort of pass out and go into a fugue and they all sort of uh, drop to the ground. The difference is, as the Day the Earth Died Screaming comes up on, on the, uh, the title card, you realize that these people are dead. They're not passed out. They're not going to get back up. And you're essentially watching the whole world kind of die. Not screaming, the whole world kind of dies sleeping, I guess. But that's not as good a title. And then where it goes is it becomes a story that, as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, this is, this is 1964. It's a little bit before... Or it's a little bit after The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, but little after, meaning a handful of months after. And it's four years before Night of the Living Dead. But you can see, as the story starts to unfold, that there are some some actual similarities to this. It's actually impressive that you go about eight minutes without any kind of dialogue. You were just watching one man sort of pick his way through the town and through this... Uh, it, we're, we're in England, and he's kind of picking his way through... And you're seeing people dead in cars, dead on the street. There's no narration. There's nothing like that. It's the the shots are very desolate. They're very lonely. They kind of do uh, a movie like The Last Man on Earth, except that whole time you've got Vincent Price speaking. So the other thing you notice is that this character, whose name we don't know at this point, uh, he's an older man. He's in his 50s. This is not a young man. Most of the characters in this film aren't young people. So I thought that was interesting too. So, and the other thing is right off the bat, and this is Terrence Fisher, you can tell, and 20th Century Fox is behind the, the film, you can tell right off the bat that there's a bigger budget here. So that's, uh, that, that puts it in a different bracket than, than the other two movies that we've talked about from this time frame. So as you're going along, you start to build this group of people who are clearly uh, survivors that for one reason or another have survived. Willard Parker... Uh, is the guy who's playing Jeff Nolan. Jeff Nolan is the, the person we meet initially. He's trying to find out what's happened, and he starts to meet these characters. The first two characters he uh, meets are Quinn Taggart and Peggy Hatton, and you're not certain at first. They present themselves as a married couple. It's cl- pretty clear that they are not as they begin talking. Anytime that uh, Jeff walks away, you realize that, okay, they've got some kind of deal going on. You're not exactly certain why. Peggy does reveal that she was in a uh, an oxygen tent, and then when she came out of it, the world had basically fallen apart. You know, kind of has those feelings of 28 Days Later, or earlier than this, a movie like The Day of the Triffids. So you still don't know what's happened, and you start to gather this small group of people, and they are holed up in one area. And uh, this is none of those movies that kind of precludes these later disaster films particularly set in england where everyone decides we need to go to the pub you know this this maybe was one of the first let's hide out in the pub movies and it's so funny how watching it and the the imagery you do see it repeated in lots of movies you think of 20 days later Shaun of the dead and then you see the invaders such as they are and they are outside and they look like robots and they're kind of that retro kind of robot or rocket man kind of look at this point in time they were probably maybe based off of uh like the doctor who the the daleks these robotic invaders that come in and want to take over everything however there's a character that comes into doctor who later called the cyberman which these these look almost identical to the cybermen so they preclude the cybermen i think 
but they uh, they seem to be robotic aliens. We don't really learn a lot about them. The one thing we do know is that they have been responsible for gassing everybody else, and now these characters are in a place where what are we going to do? And it's interesting because one of the ladies inside sees them, runs out thinking they're the military and they're going to help, and they kill her. That's, these are problem enough. You know, you've got half the world or more is gassed. We don't know beyond these survivors who's even still left and where we can, what we can do and where we can go and why this happened. But then, in probably one of the creepy scenes in the movie where it moves from science fiction into horror, the lady who was struck down gets back up. She's eyes are rolled back in her head. She She's zombified. This doesn't the, the way this is visually represented is definitely going back to the kind of voodoo imagery of zombies her eyes are rolled back in her head she's walking sort of in a trance and she picks her way back into the home where uh, all the all the main characters are gathered i could go on with the plot but in general what you have is a survival story that starts up they're contending with these zombies they're also contending with these aliens and one of the interesting things is they're trying to determine what's happened, but you're not, you don't really have a moment where there's a scientific breakdown that explains exactly what these aliens are, and we get an idea of what they may be doing, and we get the idea that the gas emanated maybe from this one place. If we can go here, we can stop that. But this isn't a movie that tries to give you all the answers from a science fiction perspective, and I really enjoyed that. I think it works pretty well. It's also a short film. In its running time, it gives you interesting characters. I thought Dennis Price, who played Quinn Taggart, he was almost one of the most interesting characters because he feels like he's 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 out of a seedy crime novel. You know, everyone else is kind of exactly who you'd expect, and Price's character is a little bit more interesting, I think, than all the rest. They're not extremely um, well-built characters in terms of motivations and things like that, but I think they work well enough to get you through the story. The robot men are really creepy, particularly if you think that this precluded a lot of what we're expecting this is four years again before night of the living dead and that scene when the dead body comes back to life and 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 comes down the staircase is pretty creepy so fisher is delivering a lot of the same stuff he delivered with the uh the hammer movies in a really fun sci-fi movie is it is it a classic no but they also find an interesting way to deal with that dilemma that happens when you're dealing with kind of an end of the world setting is how do you how do you end it without wrapping everything up in a neat bow? So for me, I enjoyed the productions. I enjoyed the acting. I think it's uh, it's definitely a B picture, but this is the kind of B picture you want. It's got a little bit of juice to it. It's got some energy. Uh, there's also a fun scene where the main character, you know, he's 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 kind of put a bead on one of the one of the the zombies, and he's going to go shoot him. And you're surprised when he doesn't shoot him in the head. He shoots him right in the crotch. <laughs> <laughs> that was a scene that stood out to me like well you know i'm checking off the list of things i haven't seen before and i haven't, I haven't seen that one so for me i really enjoyed this i'd probably give this about a seven it's really fun if you've seen a lot of movies in general particularly the horror and sci-fi genre you've seen a lot of things done you just have to keep in mind that a lot of it was being done either at the same time or before a lot of the classics that we're aware of so i I was quite pleased with it, and it, it's uh, it's as good, as well-made as many of Fisher's other movies, so in, in no way, to me, was it a step down. I wish they had done a little bit more with it. It does wrap up too quickly, but otherwise, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, I uh, really enjoyed this. Uh, when I started watching, I sat there and I texted you right away and said, I think I've seen this. And in fact, I had, but it had been a few years, so... 
that's you know a thousand movies ago so there's no doubt that i'd forgotten a lot of the plot line but once it started going uh, i got back into it and i remembered it and as you said it's only 62 minutes so it's not any more than any any other drama you'd watch on tv a couple things about it uh when you watch it you can tell it's directed by somebody that's got a bit of finesse to it clearly a sci-fi movie but it does have its horror slant in it that Fisher is kind of based in. Uh, it's kind of got a bit of a darker feel to it, which is not the same that can be said for a lot of sci-fi genre films in that time frame. Uh, the robots I found a bit clunky, um, almost Robbie Robot-ish, but kind of like wind-up toys that you used to have on your kitchen table that would move around. That That's what they kind of reminded me of a little bit. But the quality, the film production was quality, uh, he had a lot of uh, camera shots that were from far away and then close up. Like, he knew what he was doing. Like, a lot of these B-ish films, you're kind of thinking they're slapped together or some guy that's a veteran who just got a chance to put the movie together. Fisher has a backing and he knows what he's doing. Um, and the opening, I thought, as you alluded to already, was very strong. And the other thing I like about this is Fisher doesn't spoon feed you all the details right away. You have to kind of put it together. And then as the people become part of the story, you get a bit more and you get a bit more. But I think Fisher was purposely evasive a little bit in terms of the background and the backstory of some of the characters. Uh, the one character set of characters that you hadn't mentioned, there was a younger gentleman and his pregnant wife. And I thought they were pretty interesting because at first he doesn't want to say anything to them. And he's this real standoffish guy. And by the end, he's telling him his life story and is willing to help out any way he can. He almost looked like a little bit like a an undersold Frankie Avalon out there. Yeah, that's that's about right. And they kind of come into the plot at just the right moment. Like they're not there for most of the setup. And suddenly it's like somebody said, wait, we need young people in this movie. <laughs> well, that's it. But they also almost give a sense of uh realism to it because a lot of the other ones are older stayed characters and these are like hey they're only like 25 yeah and uh what else did i have here it's it's one of the earliest survival films that i i know of like i wouldn't say it's like saw or anything like that but it's one of those ones that are basically set in one location they got to figure out what's on and they got to survive against the menace in this case it's the robots but we really don't know what's behind the robots like a lot of these things, like uh, the ones we did last week, uh, not Vast of Night, um, uh, Alien Trespass, where you kind of find out at the end where it's because they wanted to monitor the race and what have you. We don't know why they did this, but we do know that uh, how it is shown at the end stops what they're doing. But we don't know why. We don't know why they chose this town, why they uh, were at and walking around doing what they're doing. Now, that can be a good thing because you might not necessarily need that much backfill, but you also don't really know what their motivation is for wanting to do this. But in the end, I enjoyed it. I, I'm with you. I give it between a six and a half to a seven. Uh, on the plus side, it's only 62 minutes. Uh, and the characters were good enough. Uh, I thought Willard Parker, who played, uh, what's the character's name? Jeff, I think it is. Yeah, the, the main character. The, the main hero, character, Jeff. Will. Yeah, I, he was, I mean, he's not Clark Gable or anything, but he was good enough for this film to get you through what you needed to get through. So uh, he was almost 
you can tell that he's done westerns. I'd be willing to bet because he's almost a western taking charge against the banditos, and that's what he's doing here. The banditos are the uh, robots. Yeah, that's a good point because two things you said. One is that this movie, not the exactly maybe the first of its kind, but it definitely is an early example of that small band of characters surviving not just against a uh, one or two adversaries, but in this case possibly you know hundreds. We don't see hundreds, but you don't know, right? Because it's the end of the world, and this end of the world kind of scenario suggests that if there's a small group, if if we can see twenty or thirty rocket men, then how many other rocket men are there? And it's the kind of thing that happens in other movies and other genres. But you're right. That primarily at this time, if you've got the small group against a large band, it was most times a Western, right? And so it's interesting when you think about that that difference between the Western and then, you know, the sci-fi or the horror movie. And that's kind of, this is like kind of a bridge movie, if you will, in that in that regard. But I did enjoy it. It is, I guess, slight in a sense. It's not, there's nothing in it that's as iconic as the movies that come later. But if you do look at a movie like Night of the Living Dead, what does George Romero not tell us? Why the dead are back, right? Like, we don't know exactly why. We have suppositions and we have suspicions, but we don't we don't know exactly why they're back. Uh, and we don't necessarily know anything about the forces behind them a movie like war of the worlds has a narrator that tells us a little bit about the martians but otherwise in this movie we only really know what the characters could know no no scientist comes out and informs us of more and i kind of think that makes sense i watched independence day the other day with my kids and it seems so phony when someone comes out and you know i've mind melded with the aliens and this is their intention but we already know they want to kill us do we need to know why (laughs) <laughs> the other thing so. I found interesting is the way that it ended. If it had been more successful or had the had the uh, production company wanted to, it lended itself to a continuation of the story with sequels. Because you could have had, you know, maybe there's another pocket in the south of England. Uh, maybe these characters move on and try to save the rest of the society or what have you. So it in today's, like we talked about with Vast of Night last week, where it was almost like a pilot, this could have developed into that, I think, had it have been more successful or somebody had the gumption to do that. Yeah, I, th- I think, and I like, even if there weren't, I do like that they leave it open in the sense of, we don't know what these characters are going to find next. They have a goal, they're headed somewhere. In that way, it really is kind of like a Twilight Zone episode, you know. I thought it was very economical in how they set everything up, and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, this this legitimately could have been a Twilight Zone, even the even with that opening, and then where they choose to put the put the title card felt just about how they would do an opening for the Twilight Zone. I enjoyed the score, too. I thought the score it was very... Uh, it, it became very um, frantic at certain points, and almost... Uh, almost anxiety provoking you know there sometimes it just sounded like clanging metal uh there were a couple moments where i'm like wow this is pretty intense it would it would move outside of what you would expect the kind of like traditional score to sound like and it became kind of discordant i thought well that's interesting because particularly i'm thinking of the scene when the dead body comes back to the house right like the, the musical choices there were pretty interesting so it's like you said you can see fisher is a guy who knows his craft and he's considering 
each of these pieces. The music hasn't just been slapped on top of something else. So um, I do like it a lot, and I feel like it's probably inspired a lot more movies and a lot more shows than we're probably aware of. And I wonder if the people that were inspired even realized it, because it, it almost seems like one of those little sleeper movies that people have seen, and they may not even remember, like you, whether we whether they've seen it or not. I was going to say, I bet Romero at some point, he may not have consciously thought about it, but it kind of planted a few seeds in his head, perhaps. That was the thing that struck me. When I sent you the text saying I watched it and it surprised me what movie it was like, I, I just did not expect it, particularly with the poster. Uh, uh, something precursor to Night of the Living Dead was the last thing I expected watching this movie. And yes, the title's a little overwrought, but I did enjoy it. It's available on Prime. It's available on Tubi, I believe, right? And a uh, lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. So our next movie is, uh, we didn't pick this as one of the, the Tubi movies, but you had mentioned this to me, Bill. And then when you mentioned the movie and said you were going to watch it, I realized that I, you know, I'd seen this movie. And it's a movie that I always meant to go back to because when it came out, I really enjoyed it. But I also felt like I might have been the only person that enjoyed it. And it's a perfect thing to talk about, I think, on this podcast as it delves into science fiction and, uh, and, and ideas about science fiction. So I'm going to let you set this one up. When I was looking for a movie that we both wanted to watch, I kind of wanted it to be a higher level of uh, film production and evoke a little bit of conversation. But I really didn't know much about it. Because uh, as I've said in the previous episode, sci-fi isn't necessarily my first go-to. Uh, I have no problem watching them, but it's not one that I reach for. So I hadn't come across this, but the production value looked good. The story seemed interesting. And so I went with it. It's called The Man from Earth, 2007. And IMDb gives it a 7.9, which is pretty darn high for a film of this type. And here's what they give it. An impromptu goodbye party for Professor John Oldman becomes a mysterious interrogation after the retiring scholar reveals to his colleagues he has a longer and stranger past than they can imagine. And the poster basically just shows a man enveloped in a light field above the earth. So you know something's up, but the title and that description really doesn't give it away. Now, what I like about this is it has a very interesting cast. Uh, all of you who know horror movies are very familiar with Tony Todd. Well, Tony Todd, we can both talk about this after, is in a dramatic performance. Well, dramatic might be a, a, a little heavy, but it was a non-horror performance. There's Ellen Crawford, who's been in a lot of films. William Catt, the greatest American hero and many other things. David Lee Smith, John Billingsley, and Richard Reel. And so all of these are veteran actors. So it's not like you're getting somebody just out of film school or acting school, what have you. Here's what happens. Um, the actor David Lee Smith plays John. And John is a professor at an unnamed university. I don't think they ever actually say what the university is. But he's there. This film opens. They're going to a cabin ostensibly to celebrate their school year that has just passed and John has taken a job somewhere else, or so they think. So they're hot there. They're going to chew the fat. They're academics. All of them are professors. Uh, one brings along a date 
who is a student at the university. So they're all of a certain an intellect. They're having a couple drinks. They're getting some food. They're sitting around. And John drops a bombshell. He says, I'm quitting and I'm moving on. And he's basically giving his goodbyes. And as he's going along, they're kind of poking and prodding him. What are you doing? Where are you going? Maybe they think he's going on to a corporate job or he's going on to another university or he's traveling the world or what have you. As the story goes, he begins to tell a story, or so you think it's a story, that he has had a lifetime of experiences that you cannot imagine. And he's he starts off by saying, somebody makes a mention of, oh, you sound like you were off with Columbus. How would you know so much? He goes, well, actually, you know, I was. I learned a lot from Christopher Columbus or Marco Polo. I think it was Marco Polo. Yeah. yeah. And then it goes from there. And it turns out he has lived since the beginning of man as a caveman. What they call it? Um, Cro-Magnon. Cro-Magnon, man. That's it. And so, oh, Paleolithic man. That's it. He professes he is a Paleolithic man 14,000 years ago. And he moves on every 10 years when people notice he doesn't age. And so he's been around for 14,000 years, which is X amount of decades, X amount of epochs. And every 10 years, he has to move on. And, and he doesn't claim to be the smartest man in the world. He never claims to be immortal. But he claims he has to keep moving on because the people around him are dying. And he has survived all the plagues, all the floods, all the great... Uh, catastrophes the world has seen because he having lived it all he kind of knows what you have to do in these situations now the people around him are becoming one they're fascinated but then they become increasingly irritated and skeptical and william cat plays a, pro a professor and he brings along a date and he becomes progressively mad at them and Ellen Crawford plays someone who's ultra religious. And it's not a spoiler to say this. At one point, John claims to have been Jesus Christ. And she's a biblical literalist who's brought to tears at one point. Uh, at one point, William Catt calls his friend Richard Reel, who's a psychiatric professor, to come in and kind of examine him from the couch. Although not literally on the couch, but those type of questions. I'm not going to give a lot of the rest away because it's for you to investigate. It's basically a character and dialogue driven film. It is science fiction. There is no doubt it's rooted in science, but you do not get bogged down by the science. It's almost a drama. It doesn't have any horror, but some of the elements within it are horrific. I really, really dug it. Um, I like one that's set in one location. The whole film is set within this cabin or the just outside of the cabin. It makes you think. It makes you wonder. You're not sure to believe him or not. You don't know what his motivation is. You don't know if he's full of crap or if he's just a good actor. I'm not going to give away the ending because I want you to watch this film. I, as someone whose sci-fi is not my first go-to, Really, really liked it because it brought elements of a lot of different genres to it. But essentially, uh, like a Tarantino film, 
where it's dialogue heavy and character driven. This has drama. This has a little bit of horror elements. This has sci-fi elements to it. This has fantasy elements to it. I think this is one of my perhaps top 10 to 15 sci-fi films I have seen. Uh, I give this an 8 out of 10. I enjoy single location films. If the characters and the story is good enough, and this one, it is good enough. I thought John Billingsley as his professor friend is quite good, quite strong in this. And Richard Reel uh, is very good. And if you look up Richard Reel, he was in Seinfeld. That's where I first uh, thought of him of. But he's got, he's done a lot of films. He was really quite good as somebody who's, wife has just died and he's reacting in a certain manner so i don't know about you nathan but i can't recommend this strong enough for sci-fi and non-sci-fi lovers i was really i was really happy when you mentioned that you were going to watch it and then when you came back and really liked it that made me even happier because when this movie came out in 2007 and a lot of the people in my in my orbit at the time as they were commenting upon it people either hated it for a couple different reasons some people hated it because they were expecting it to be science fiction and in their mind science fiction uh needed action right and maybe special effects and at least some kind of setting that felt sci-fi now if you're a person who has has read any sci-fi novels or has watched things like The Twilight Zone and things like that, then you know that this is firmly rooted in science fiction, even though it only takes place one afternoon into evening at a man's house at a dinner party, essentially. There are a lot of great dinner party movies, whether they be horror or science fiction, that uh, don't move outside of one location. Now, not only that, though, a movie can be in one location and still be filled with lots of event and a lot of action, but there's no real, you know, there are some altercations, but there's no real action, per se, in this movie either. This is really a movie about conversation. So the other thing is I had a lot of people that came to me and said they disliked it right off the bat because they felt that it was sort of an atheist screed and it was trying to tear down Christianity and things like that, which I think is also a misreading of what's happening in this story because, as you pointed out, there is a point when it's not so much that John claims to be Jesus Christ as more off-putting to some of the people in this room is that he actually says he was the inspiration for Jesus Christ sort of by accident. He intended one thing and what happened was something else. So it's not even that he's claiming that I am the Christ. He's saying that I am the inspiration behind the myth of Christ, which is more uh, both, I think, to the people who saw this movie and felt offended by it and to one of some of the characters in the film. It's, it's more off-putting than if he says, oh, you know, I am Jesus Christ. So that part of the story is central, but it's not the only thing that's happening. So when I saw it, I, I took it differently because the way I approached it is, again, kind of like a Twilight Zone episode, kind of like a short story, a piece of of speculative fiction the point and the aim of the story is not really about whether john uh was jesus or wasn't jesus or whether john has even lived as long as he said he's lived it becomes a story about a bunch of intellectual people who are in one room together exploring the concepts of what if what if you could live for this amount of time and what would you be if you lived this amount of time and the conversations they have aren't just They're not singularly, like, theoretical. It is theoretical. They get into a lot of this. But what you've 
what the um, Jerome Bixby is the person who wrote this story. And Bixby might not be a name you recognize, but Bixby died in 1998. So he died years before this movie was ever made. He had this idea in the 1960s when he was writing episodes of, guess what, The Twilight Zone and episodes of Star Trek. And he, he's done some other stuff as well. He dictated it to his son on his deathbed in 98 and his son took it all down. And then, years later, in 2007, they made it into this film that Richard Shankman directs. And it's clear they don't have a lot of money. It's clear that basically all they've got time for is basically a stage play, right? They're all going to come into this room, and these professors are going to come into this room. And what Bixby's done is he brings in people who all have different fields... They have different interests. They have different specialities, but they all are thinkers. They pride themselves on thought. Some of them pride themselves on the things they believe. Some of them pride them th themselves on the ability not to be taken in, right? Not to believe. And so in that context, you have atheists and believers and some believers in, in Christianity, some believers in psychiatry, some believers in science. And John, at some point, manages to sort of offend them all. And it's interesting because the ID concept here is these people are coming to say goodbye to him. It all starts out. They think he's just uh, he's a professor who's just been there for 10 years. and He's just up and leaving. And he's had close relationships, some closer than uh, you, you realize. You start to see that the level of closeness he has with some of these people is greater in some cases and, and not. But they all have a care for him. They all want to be there for him. Everyone who shows up there want is there not just as a gesture but because they really care about him and that also adds something so this guy is standing here he's never told anybody he says he's never really told anybody this before this is the first time he's after eleven thousand years he's finally found a group of people that he feels like i need to tell you the truth and the movie is it's just that it's just that conversation but told in such a realistic way that everyone's allowed to stop and ask their questions. And the movie never feels, it, it may be towards the end, as we start to get into the stuff where he he, he talks about the, the Christ segment, the movie does start to kind of spin its wheels just a little bit. People keep asking and objecting to the same questions over and over, but you do realize they're being given a lot of information. And so when Richard Reel keeps coming back to the same emotional response and... You've got some of these other characters, the lady who can't get beyond the fact, but you said you're Jesus, you know. She gets hung up on that, and the movie kind of gets hung up on that just a little bit. But the conversations that are had are really compelling because, Bill, what you said was, you know, he doesn't he doesn't know everything. And he explains why he can't know everything. He's like, well, I was at the same level everybody else was at any given time. So when I was a caveman, I didn't know that the stars didn't hold gods doing battle. Everything I learned about myself, I learned the same way you learned, through books, or when there was enough knowledge at the time. Any given point, I was no smarter than any other man on earth, you know. His previous knowledge didn't give him fresh new insights to be able to prepare. He's not a time traveler, he's just a guy who's lived a really long time and has managed not to die. He does seem to heal when he gets uh, plagues and, and he says he doesn't scar, and so... That element allows them to have this sort of very interesting back and forth that I think if you take it at face value, if you take it for what it is and allow yourself to go along with the mental exercise, this isn't about disproving a religion. This isn't about scientific gobbledygook. It's an interesting story about the what if, what if a man was able to go through all these experiences? And then he's talking to people who are genuinely interested in all the questions that that provokes. Well... 
why don't you remember your home? And, you know, what do you think about what happened to Christianity after you tried to do these things? You know, those are interesting and compelling questions outside of anything else that's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's not a perfect film. There, there are a couple problems, not problems, but things that came up. I found the ending was rushed. It felt a little sloppy towards the end of the film, almost as if uh, John Bix or Jerome Bixby's uh, script, he didn't quite get the end of it. And they kind of either threw it together or they had to shorten it because of time or budgetary reasons. So I found the end a little sloppy. The other um, one thing I was a little not, not upset with, but uh, the characters, they always asked kind of theoretical questions. What would have happened if this happened? What if nobody asked and said, what was it like when Lincoln got shot? Or nobody said, what was it like when the Romans invaded such and such? Like, I would have asked, like, what was it like at Woodstock? You know, like, you would have asked these real (laughs) specific, you know, what was it like when we found out that the earth wasn't flat? You know, like, they didn't, it was kind of like, well, did the animals roam? And what was it like when the Ice Age ended? Like, it was a little wishy-washy on that end of it. But if you're a fan of movies like coherence or a fan of the movie like the invitation you're gonna really dig this film those are both excellent yeah examples of this of of something similar something of that range um i give this an eight out of ten uh i can't review it for a blind find this is about as good as a hidden gem as i can find no, I'd agree, and I think that if there's anyone out there who really enjoys science fiction, the the thing behind science fiction, the ideas. If you are someone who watches The Twilight Zone and says, "Why don't they make things like this anymore?" this this is an example of that. It has the same curiosity about life. It has the same interest in human feelings. It has actors that are up to the task. You know, are they all fantastic? Is this perfectly directed? It's not. Richard Schenkman, uh, one of the other movies I saw that I, he did that I liked, was an asylum movie called Abraham Lincoln vs. Zombies. So he's not just, his career is not necessarily distinguished, but he can point the camera and he lets the actors do the work. Um, a quick note about some of the actors. I, I thought William Catt was probably the least effective. Uh, it's Catt's not necessarily a great actor. He's not a bad actor. One of the problems is he's given the Doubting Thomas sort of role. And his character is very, he's almost there just to object constantly. He doesn't really get a chance to dig into a lot of the meat of what's going on. So he's always reactionary, which is always a problematic when you've got this room full of people who want to engage this guy and have interesting discussions. And then he's the guy who's like, wait a minute, I can't take this. And I think when the script starts to circus, you know, kind of circle itself, it's with his character, you know. Uh, at some point, he's making all the same objections for the duration of the of the story, and whereas a character like Richard Real, who's also sort of opposing what John is saying, he's bringing more emotion to it, but he's also got a juicier role, right? Like just in the things that you know he's dealing with the grieving of his wife. He also gets to ask interesting questions, like, or everyone else around you dies and you live. And you don't know why you survive. How are you sure you're not a vampire of a certain sense, right? How do you know that you're not absorbing life and leaving a wake of bodies? And, you know, asking interesting theoretical questions. That You know, they're theoretical, but they're also emotionally driven because of what he's been through. One reason he was effective is he had a much less amount of screen time. Right. He doesn't have a chance to become beat, bang the same drum. 
someone else who's really effective, and I think it is some down to his acting and the way he handles it, is Tony Todd. But Todd's character is also the guy who gets to be the one who just wants to embrace this thing um, fully. It, not, not that he's necessarily going to believe it all, but in the moment, let's just go with it. He approaches this thing as a creative exercise. And the thing about Tony Todd is interesting, is that people watch this movie, they're probably familiar with a lot of the horror films he's done, and you look at him, you're like, oh, here's Tony Todd, he's acting completely different, you know, he's a, he's a scholarly, uh, thoughtful, well-spoken man, and like that, I mean, not that Todd's not a great actor, but having um, met Todd, that's, that's who Tony Todd is, you know, that's who Tony Todd really is, it's not the monsters that he's played, the, the, the smart, well-spoken, thoughtful easygoing guy that's that's tony todd uh he's he's acting but he's really getting a chance to show you i think who he kind of is as a person the way he carries himself and you can tell he's very comfortable with it and there is a point when he finally gets fed up and it's really strong because you can see his frustration and that feels real i think his frustration when he's done when his when he raises his voice that's the moment i think that's the most accurate and then you know the the hard the, you would think the hard role here David Lee Smith who's playing the John Oldman character I thought he was really good he's not necessarily the standout but he's really good at kind of anchoring everything here and again this is a story that's filled with ideas and I think you can go into it I think you can engage with it and not you don't have to buy a certain message because I'm not certain even that it has a certain message or any of these other things you got to engage with this as a story I agree with you I think that this movie probably could have been extremely tight at an hour, or it could have been expanded and maybe been maybe maybe been a little bit longer and harder to get through, but maybe even better or richer at say a two hour time frame. But you're right, it's either too long or it's too short as it is now. And for me, I think they started wrapping things up. They tried to put a bow on the story, right? They have to have a moment where we need to actually know whether John is who he says he is or not. And unfortunately for me, the device they use to try and make this happen, the movie seems over, you know? To me, the movie's over. I don't... It, does it have a great finale if that's the ending? No, it doesn't. But the finale they tack on brings to mind too many questions about John and the kind of person he is. A lot of people say a lot of things about, well, what kind of person are you, John? And then the thing at the end opens too many questions for me. I just don't like it. I think it's too clever. It feels like a... It feels almost like a Shyamalan ending, you know what I mean? It, it it just feels very out of the blue. When it ended, I was kind of like, oh, I really didn't see that coming. <laughs> but I don't think that you could have. And, and the, the problem is it opens up too many questions. She just finishes saying something to him about the kind of person she thinks he is. And then this happens. And I don't think you're supposed to think that deeply about it. But you're like, wait a minute, what? I've allowed a lot. I've allowed a lot to to pass in the last hour and a half, but I don't know about this. I, I was sitting there thinking, and uh, the lead actor, uh, David Lee Smith, he was okay. He he pushed the story along. I think he did a good He does what he needs to do. He's kind of a TV actor. Yeah, but I was sitting there thinking, who could you throw in there that maybe would have added a bit? And I think somebody like Thomas Gibson would have been really good in this role. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, he wasn't a terrible actor, but he wasn't. He didn't grab the bull by the balls kind of deal. Like he didn't. Well, he's almost a cipher, you know, and he almost he's a cipher for the, some of these other characters to play off of. But I do agree that you could have had a stronger movie. Um, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to say an eight out of ten. It uh, it would have probably been higher had they really found a way to bring this plane in and land it, but they don't quite manage that. 
was going to say, and for anybody, anybody that watches, it's on Prime. It's readily available. But something that I said to uh, Nathan and and he noticed after was, if you watch that version, they tie in the the trailer of number two in the credits. I didn't even realize there was a second film to it, and I still have yet to watch it. Well, and the thing about this movie, when it came out, and they did this with the sequel too, is it was clearly a word-of-mouth movie, right? It's a movie that people downloaded off the internet, or they saw it back when Netflix had 10, 10 streaming options. That's where I remember seeing it. It was like Netflix threw five movies out there, and this was one of them. And uh, the, the thing is, people saw it, and then they realized, oh, we've got something. So they crowdfunded a sequel, and the sequel was meant to kind of be a pilot for a TV series. But they realized, okay, well, how do you crowdfund a, a series and you don't know what's going to get picked up? So they had to kind of go back and retool it as a movie. But unfortunately, I don't. I think the sequel makes a lot of the mistakes when you tell, tell someone, hey, let's watch a movie about an hour and a half dinner party with a, with a bunch of intellectuals question a man who claims to be an 11,000-year-old caveman. Like, who wants to watch that, guys? You know, and the fact that this movie works is because it it man it manages to embrace that concept and do a lot of things, and it 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 navigates through most of the traps you think that story would set up. The problem with the sequel is it falls into all of the traps that you would expect. Uh, it brings a couple of the character. It brings the obviously David Lee Smith comes back. He's at a different place now. He's at a different school. You have these kids who are trying to figure out what's going on but the problem is what are they trying to uncover the mystery that we already have that's already been solved for us in the first film and now because it's 10 years later he's actually started to age they have to build that into the story somehow but it it makes a lot of mistakes the first movie brings up the the combat between this idea of who he's claiming to be and then people who feel that they're in very belief system is being challenged by his existence but the care the christian character in the first movie wasn't just a wasn't a straw man she was a thoughtful character you there were many reasons she was upset one of them was just that she felt that this man she thought she knew was hurting her for no good reason right and so that's all thrown out the window so i can't really recommend the sequel it's called the man from earth halo scene but i wouldn't i wouldn't really seek it out if you really feel the need to see it uh but it 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 doesn't really wrap the story up anymore it just rehashes it and then sets it up to be kind of a series there's a really goofy even credits sequence in that movie so if this is an eight out of ten that's more like a four out of ten i'd say it's probably something to just avoid or not don't mess with unless you really feel the need to follow up with it william cat comes back john billingsley has a small role but it's unfortunately it doesn't capture even one tenth of the um the thoughtfulness that's in this movie Sounds like one to put on in the background if, you're, if your son or daughter wants to play Lego and you want something on in the background. <laughs> and I will say for anybody listening that is worried about showing this with their family, there is no nudity, there are no sex scenes, there's no blood. I don't even think they say a swear word. Like, it is completely family-friendly. No, the only thing uh, the, the only thing that's happening in here that's provocative are the ideas. <laughs> yep. Yep, because you can watch this with your grandma, and it might actually might be interesting to watch with your grandma because she would have a different take on this. So, I, I advise you watch this with all kinds of different people. My feelings on this are: this is a movie you watch not necessarily to like it or for everyone to like it, but it opens up discussion. Like you don't have to agree with it, it with anything or everything you hear in this movie. It's not even made to be that kind of movie, but it is a great springboard for discussions, for intelligent conversations. I think that's really what this is. It, and I think that's how it works. 
And as, as someone myself, I have an honors degree in history. My synapses were just pumping as this movie was going. <laughs> yeah, it was exciting, right? It was way more exciting than the Viking women and the sea serpents. <laughs> uh, no comment on that one. Well, I watched this right after I showed my kids Independence Day. I rewatched this. And it was funny, the difference where I was just sort of biding my time through that movie. And I remembered enjoying it a lot more. And I was thinking, wow, this is just such a stupid script. And it was interesting to see that movie where, you know, a good chunk of the earth is annihilated. And then to watch this small movie and just be so much more engaged and energized by it. Okay, so that's uh, that's basically kind of our, our show. We do need to do the... Pick the next VOD movies if you're up for doing that. I would love to. I haven't been able to sleep all night wondering what you were going to give me. <laughs> right. Well, well, let's see. I've got some. I had a couple different ones here because there's always the possibility that you've um, uh, that you may not have seen something. But before we do that, Bill, you had told me recently. Uh, you texted me. You're telling me about a book you were reading and uh, sounded really interesting. Do you want to give us a quick review of that? Yeah, well, I just wanted to let the audience know, I do love to read. I'm a reader by heart. But I get my books, honestly, at the thrift shop. I like supporting my local uh, thrift shops because the money goes to charity and to women's shelters and Catholic charities. That's and always so fun, too, to go and get a book that way. And and the hunt and the fun is in the hunt, you know, because, I mean, to get a book for 50 cents, if you don't like it after 30 pages, you know, your money's gone to one of the homeless shelters and you're good. But I, I see it as an adventure and a hunt through, you know, there was a time in my life where you wouldn't want to be caught dead in one of them. Now I'm very proud to go into one of them. And so I picked one up called Necrophenia. It's by an author called Robert Rankin. Now, what you need to know about me is I read all kinds of things. Biographies, sci-fi, horror, fantasy. If it's interesting, I'll give it a shot. Kind of like my movie watching. Robert Rankin, Necrophenia. And it has elements of horror because he's dealing, the character's dealing with zombies. It has time travel. It has time jumps. It has rock and roll. It has Elvis Presley. It has Mama Cass. So what happens is there's this young kid in high school who's formed a band and the band isn't really going anywhere. He's not a real popular kid. None of them are that popular. And a man comes around who acts after witnessing one of their gigs and says, I'm going to fund you. And he surprises them by giving them all kinds of uh, equipment, but it takes you down a path where he eventually jumps into different time loops he becomes uh, almost a Sam Spade detective. There's some detective serialness to it. There's a little bit of action. You're jumping around from loop to loop. And I'm really looking forward to find more of this guy's uh, writing. So his name is Robert Rankin. If you Google him or use Yahoo or whatever it is you use, he has a huge cadre of books. He's an award-winning author. So... I think it's worth investigating. I hope I come across a couple more of his because he has lots. And he's an easy read. Like, it's one of those ones I literally read a couple chapters at a time sitting on my hammock. And, you know, give those who are really strong readers and read fast can probably get through one in a day. I read 20 pages at a time, put it down, and then go back to it. So it took me about, I don't know, two weeks to read the thing. But it was really good. So I can't uh, recommend it. I mean, it's not no War of the Worlds or anything, but it's a fun summer read. What I'm currently reading, and I'm only mentioning it because 
a lot of people that are into science fiction are also stat nerds, love stats, love science, love engineering. That's not me per se, but the topic of the book is baseball. And it's called the Cooperstown Casebook. Who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Who should be in? And who should pack their plaques? By an author called Jay Jaffe, who I've seen uh, live before. He gives a good talk. And he's a sports writer. And what he does is he analyzes statistically who is in the Baseball Hall of Fame currently, why other people should be in, and why other people should maybe not be in. And he does it from an analytical, scientific study, and he is, uh, he's also created his own stat categories. So if you like to know why somebody has done something and why they should or shouldn't be there, like if you say your favorite baseball player is uh, right now, if you think it's Mike Trout from the Los Angeles Angels, he at some point will probably break down what the current standard is, what it was in different eras gone by. And he takes variations from everybody from the 1880s to present day. So he's going over 150 years worth of data and by position and by era and why people should be in and why they shouldn't. From a pure sports point of view, it's fascinating. If you don't care about sports, but you like stats and you like science and a quantitative data kind of thing, it's an interesting read. If you like both, you're going to it's not an easy book to just guzzle through, but it's a fun read. So Robert Rankin. And Jay Jaffe are two books that uh, I'm really enjoying reading. Cool, and I will put the links to those into the uh, into the show notes here, so everyone can check them out. So that sounds cool. I have some uh, books. I'll probably have a review next time. I won't get into them right now, but uh, that are reading. I, I'm I'm in a, I used to read really quickly. I still read quickly, but I don't get nearly enough time to sit down and really engage with the books because I'm usually getting called off to this thing or that thing or whatever. So are we ready to do this Tubi thing, Bill? Let's give her a whirl. And I will say that at some point, one of us will text each other and say, oh, this is a movie both of us should watch. You uh, you want to go first? Sure. So what I did is I have a laptop upstairs and I have a laptop in my basement, which I'm currently at. And in both laptops, I have a whole file just of sci-fi, horror, fantasy. I think I have them labeled Nathan movies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was looking through and I had one good to go. But I, this one, I'm, I, I chose Tubi for this one. And if anybody who knows Tubi, if you take a certain genre, it has about 10 down the side. If you like that, go to this one. So I chose one. I haven't seen it. And I would never give Nathan one that I wouldn't want to watch either. Because it's just, that's not smart. So this one is a sci-fi horror from 1989 called, it's on Tubi. It's called The Terror Within. Is Andrew Stevens in this movie? Yes, he is. And the reason I chose this is not Andrew Stevens. George Kennedy is apparently in this film. Uh, yeah, have I seen it? But it's bit, I have, but I have very little recollection of it. So I'm, I'm up for watching it again. I'll describe it. It says, when a chemical warfare leaves the world barren and filled with mutated monsters, a band of survivors in an underground complex battles one of the creatures who was about to break in. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I think there was even a sequel to this, the, the, the Terror Within 2, because I think this is Andrew Stevens and Stella Stevens. This is, yeah, I have, I have like, flashes of imagery, but I'm, 
sometimes I like going back to movies that I haven't seen and forgot I ever watched as much as I do movies I've never seen, particularly when it's they're from the eighties because they're always fun to revisit. It's a fun, like, I mean, it's same with me with like the earth dies screaming. I couldn't remember it, but whatever it, I thought this was a kind of a blend of horror sci-fi and just pure schlock monster movie. So I have a bunch here because I don't know what you've seen and not seen. So we'll just go until I hit one you haven't watched. (laughs) Just shoot it. Shoot it away. Have you seen Split Second with Rugger Hauer? Uh, Not in a long time. That could be a good one. If you're sure you've seen it, I know you like to see something you've never seen. How about Dr. Mordred? I have not to the best of my knowledge. This is a full moon movie. Full moon. Oh, boy. It's on Tubi. Stars Jeffrey Combs. So you have that going for it. And what Charles Band actually wanted to do was make Doctor Strange. But he couldn't get Marvel to give him the rights to Doctor Strange. So what he did was made a Doctor Strange movie and just changed his name to Doctor Mordred. But everything else about the movie is a low-budget Doctor Strange story. Now, do you spell Mordred M-O-R-D-R-E-D? Doctor Mordred is M-O-R-D-R-I-D. Oh, I do. I was going yeah. to give you slugs. Slugs. It's so funny because I was going to give you bats. <laughs> Maybe that'll have to be next time, slugs and bats. Because bats has Lou Diamond Phillips in it. Oh, boy. But in Dr. Mordred, and, and you know, watching the trailer, Brian Thompson is in it, who, if you don't recognize him by name, you've seen him in a lot of different things. He often plays the bad guy. He's got the, He's kind of a big, bulky square jaw type and he's he's played uh, villains in the x-files and in buffy the vampire slayer and in lots of different movies um but you'll definitely recognize him if he shows up here and anything with charles band attached to it always makes my eyebrows raise positively or (laughs) yeah no absolutely good or bad it's usually worth a watch this is the point in time there's a point in time in the mid 90s where an empire was no longer a thing a full moon had kind of just ramped up where he had he envisioned in his head it's so funny because i think charles band had the idea of doing what marvel you know when the marvel the mcu happened which was to make movies as that they were comic books charles band was trying to do that in the 90s you know with his doll man versus the demonic toys and he was trying to link all these movies together and create comic books that were basically movies (laughs) well the other thing i was going to say if there's anybody listening who has had reviews of movies we've seen in the past or suggestions that is readily available for us to watch throw them at it uh, i'm not afraid and i know nathan is not either so yes i need to start that uh engine running <laughs> let us know if we're way off base on something if you really loved the saga of the viking women and you are a truther that it should be right up there with plan nine from outer space please let us know and if you're roger corman and have some Fun facts about why we should respect this movie. Please tell us. <laughs> I have you on to talk about it. We'll, we'll, we'll take the publicist. That's fine. Yes. Yeah. Right. What? I know. I love to hear Corman talk about talk about movies. So, in fact, the the documentary that you recommend, the little uh, segments that you recommended last time, are way more interesting than the saga of the Viking women. So, I'll put some links to those as well. I haven't gotten through that whole series. I'm wondering if this one comes up. That's a good question. I don't. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't heard him talk about it. But uh, he may not. I mean, he may not remember it. Though he does have a good memory. Anyway, that is uh, the episode. I will have all of the links. Bill, you can let them know where uh, they can find you, and then I will provide everything about 
uh, where you can reach us as Phantom Galaxy and uh, where you can head out and leave us uh, reviews over at Apple Podcasts. But Bill, where can they find you? Absolutely. I look forward to one that's going to be upcoming at some point with uh, another guest of ours who also loves to talk. But I know you have a few other guests lined up uh, all within our community. So I look forward to hearing the final results of those. If you want to listen to me, I'm primarily found at Land of the Creeps podcast with Greg Morgan, Greg Amortis, and Dave Becker, Dr. Shock, wonderful co-hosts who know a heck of a lot more than I do. And uh, you can find me around at uh, Father and Son Watch Horror, or I'm on Retro Movie Geek uh, a couple episodes ago. And with Jay Wall and Jay vs. Horror, Nathan Brian Carlson and myself talked about video nasties, and we're on every couple weeks on that. So check us out. Have some fun. Suggest something for us. And I don't know if you have a tagline, Nathan, but I'd say it if I knew it. <laughs> Dude, well, I used to. The tagline used to be, we, we really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't we? Which I think is from uh, Big Trouble in Little China. So I'll, I'll, suggest, just... I'll, I'll suggest something like, where horror and science take you beyond. Yeah, that's, that's actually pretty good. I think I like that. We'll have to do something with that. Again, thanks, Bill, for joining us. And I want to let everyone know that you can find us at phantomgalaxy.podbean.com. You can also find us at Apple Podcasts. Please stop by Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review. It does help us get out there a little bit more. You can also find us on Facebook at the Phantom Galaxy Podcast uh, the page over there and try to post things and post things about upcoming episodes. And I've got some information up there right now about some of the next episodes that will be going up. Finally, if you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by a synth pop artist named Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop, a lot of very interesting genre based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.